Hello, and welcome to the first ever Oregon Trappers Association podcast. The Oregon Trappers Association strives to combine heritage and tradition with today's need to manage, control, and conserve Oregon's wildlife resources. I'm your host, Andrew Dehart. To start off this podcast series, I figured I would start by giving some background information on myself, why I love trapping, what it means to me, and how it's been a part of my life so far, as well describe why Oregon Trappers Association started this podcast and what you can look forward to hearing on future episodes. Finally, we'll wrap up this podcast episode by debunking some of the myths that people have about trappers. So to start off this podcast, like I said, my name is Andrew Dehart. I am 26 years old. I've been a lifelong Oregonian. I grew up in the little town of Parkdale, Oregon, about 20 miles south of Hood River. I've been a recreational trapper for 10 years or so. I've been a wildlife control operator for the state of Oregon for eight years. And most recently, I've been a fur buyer for three years. I've also recently been elected to be a board member on the Oregon Trappers Association board. And I love trapping. I love it for its resources that it provides. I love it for the history, the heritage, and I love it as a management tool. And without it, we would not be managing wildlife species correctly. Now, don't get me wrong. I love hunting. I love fishing and recreating in the outdoors. But there's something special about trapping. I absolutely love it. It's been a huge part of my life growing up. I always loved hearing stories of the woods and trapping. My dad trapped. My great uncle trapped. My grandpa trapped when he was younger. I had an immense amount of family friends who trapped. And it's just been a great family activity. It's a great camaraderie. And I absolutely love trapping. And I want to see it preserved in the state of Oregon. Much for the same reason Oregon Trappers Association started this podcast was because we want to see it in the state of Oregon as a whole. And we want to see it continue to be a great resource for Oregonians. And so this is kind of a public outreach tool. Oregon Trappers Association really wants to get people involved, especially younger people. And I don't mean to offend when I say younger people, but I'm really talking about people who are 35 and younger because there's a lot of gray hair in the trapping world. And if we don't continue to bring in younger people, then we won't have the trapping heritage passed down and we will eventually lose trapping in the state of Oregon. So with getting people involved, we want to see public at the rendezvous, the fur sales in Oregon, our trapping school. We want to see people out there that are interested in trapping. And we'll let you know when they are and where they are and what you can expect to do at the rendezvous, or what you can expect to see at the first sale, what fur prices may be looking like, what we'll be teaching at trapping schools. It's all going to be broadcasted on this podcast. So along with that, we're going to keep you informed on what the legislature in Oregon is doing, and where your right may be in trouble. As well, We'll be telling stories on this podcast, stories from hunting and fishing experiences, trapping experiences, what fur prices used to be. We'll give you tips and tricks. We're going to be holding interviews with board members on current issues with the state that you can get involved in. 
We'll be answering questions. I'll list an email at the end of the show where you can write in and you can ask us any question about trapping in Oregon. You can ask us, how do I become a trapper? How do I get my trapping license? How do I become an OTA member? Where are the fur sales? When is the rendezvous? What can I do to help? How do I get this coyote to quit digging up my trap? All of that will be available. And along with that, we're going to try and give you a little bit of history on trapping in Oregon. So moving on, debunking some myths that people generally have about trappers. The biggest myth that people have about trappers is that we're these large, gaunt figures with big beards who roam around in the woods, stomping around. We're bloodthirsty killers with bear traps who are greedy. They want to catch everything that they can and move on and sell it for the quickest buck that they can. We're generally lazy, and we use this unfair means to capture and harvest animals. Now, we're going to break that all apart and dissect it a little bit. So the myth that we're just these bloodthirsty killers who go out and stomp around the woods, that isn't true. Trappers are men and women alike from all different walks of life. Everybody in America generally has the availability to go out and be a trapper, including and especially Oregon. You have the right to go out, get your license, buy some traps, and learn how to trap and trap animals and do it responsibly. And we're not bloodthirsty killers. We respect the limits that we can harvest We can't go out there and catch every animal on the land. It's impossible, and we're just not into that. And going from there, you know, that kind of leads into people who are misinformed think that we're greedy. We're not greedy. Like I said, we can't trap every animal. I can't afford to catch every bobcat in a said canyon a couple miles away from my house because if I was to do that, I'd have to wait a couple of years before any bobcats move back into the area. And in order for me to go catch bobcats in future years without trapping that canyon, I'd have to drive another 50 miles out of my way. And I can't afford to do that, especially with the way gas is going right now. So we're not greedy. In fact, I know most bobcat trappers are very selective on the bobcats they harvest. And they can do that. You have an animal in a trap, he's being held there or she's being held there. And you can be selective on whether or not you want to keep this animal or release it unharmed. And what I mean by selective, a lot of trappers will move to catch more male bobcats. And that's for a particular reason. The first probably being that male bobcats generally are larger animals They don't have um, nursing scars like some females do. And it's a great management practice because if you have 10 female bobcats and 10 male bobcats in a said ecosystem, if you take out nine of those 10 males, that one male will go and he will breed all of those females. And all of those females will have two to four kittens apiece. And the population is restored for the next year. And in no means do I mean we shouldn't harvest female bobcats because all 10 of those females have two to four kittens apiece. 
there's going to be a huge overpopulation of bobcats in said area. What that leads to is a greater chance for the spread of disease, competition between bobcats for food sources, and ultimately whether they're fighting over the food and injuring themselves to the point where they can't recover or they're eating themselves out of house and home because there's not enough prey availability, it's going to diminish their population as a whole. And we can't have that. If we're slightly selective and take a few of the mature females that have reproduced already and restored their place in the environment, it's okay. It provides less stress on competition for prey species for the younger bobcats. It allows them to get a little bit of a better chance to survive and make it to maturity. And overall, it doesn't hurt the population. If we're taking out that female who's already had a kitten and that kitten's growing up, it's replaced and the cycle continues. We're very selective. I know me personally, I've caught a few smaller bobcats and I let them go because it doesn't do that animal justice for me to harvest it. If I harvest that bobcat when it's young and it's small, I'm not going to get a great benefit out of it. It's not going to be worth as much. I'm going to have to work just as hard to put up the fur and take care of it and get a lesser return. And it's not doing the animal justice for the ecosystem. I'd rather let that bobcat go, grow up, come back in a few years, have the opportunity to catch him again, and get a better benefit in the long run from it. It benefits both the ecosystem and the trapper when we're slightly selective. And continuing on the note of the misconception that trappers are greedy, how can you say we're greedy? If you know a rich trapper, I want to meet him because the act of trapping is spending $100 to make $50. It is not something that is profitable in today's age. But it is something that gives us a little kicker and a little incentive to go out and participate in this activity and get a little something back that continues to entice us. I mean, it is enticing to say, okay, I can catch five Eastern Oregon bobcats and I may sell each of those bobcats for $500. That's $2,500. That is enticing to someone like myself. I think that's great. Is it going to cover my costs? Absolutely not. It is not even going to dent the amount of money that I've spent for uh, my gear, my lure, the amount of gas that I have to spend to drive around and check my line. It's not profitable, but it's something that gives me a little bit of a return at the end of the year so that I say, okay, yeah, I'm willing to do this again and I'm having fun at it. And so, We're not greedy. We're not out to make buku bucks. We're just out to have fun, get a little bit of a return, and continue loving this activity of trapping. Now, the next misconception is that trappers are lazy. We go out, we set a trap, the trap does all the work, we just come harvest the animal and take it away and make money. That's not true. The amount of effort you have to put in to running a trap line would make even the most 
stout triathlon rethink what he's doing or she's doing. We're not lazy. I know in said years, let's let's take the opener of Bobcat season, for instance. December 1st, we get an early snow. There's a foot and a half, two foot of snow up in the hills. You have to drive up through that snow. You have to then hike through the snow to wherever you want to make your bobcat set. And you have you try and stay away from the roads and, and from where people travel. So you kind of have to go out there a little bit. You spend the next hour to hour and a half cutting down sticks to build a brush cubby, scraping away snow. You're building this brush hut. You're tying bait up in the back. You're tying your trap down or staking it down so that it can't get away. And then you move on to the next one. You get out and you make five sets in a day. At an hour and a half a piece, that's almost an eight-hour day. That's a full day of work. And it's intensive work. It's hiking through snow. It's clearing brush. It's building out in the woods. You're packing these heavy bags of traps and lures and bait on your back. Yes, don't get me wrong. Do we utilize vehicles? Absolutely. But when it comes down to it, you still have to move all that stuff from the vehicle out to where you're going to trap. I don't think a bobcat's going to sit right on the side of the road, and I don't want to set my trap on the side of the road where somebody else might see it. And so I'm hiking off into the brush, you know, 100, 200 yards through the timber, through the snow to make a more ideal bobcat set. And once you get those sets made and working, it's a continual task to keep those sets working. I mean, in those years with high snow, every time you go out and you check your traps, you have to go out, you have to brush all the snow off. You got to clear your openings out from snow that might have blown in. Most generally, you have to hike a new bait in there because smaller animals such as squirrels, chipmunks, rats, mice will get in and they'll eat your bait. And so you may have your trap set, but it doesn't mean that the cubby's going to stay working or the bait's not going to be gone when you get back there. So you're constantly shuffling back and forth and back and forth and spending time to keep this trap running as well. You know how hard it is to keep steel from freezing to wet ground? It's extremely hard. And when you get a huge snow load or freezing rain or freezing in the ground, that trap can be rendered useless. And so you have to take these huge precautionary measures, whether it's working all summer to sit there and make wax dirt or you're constantly changing peat moss or you're cutting extra fur brows to change them out so that the trap doesn't freeze to the ground. It's a constant battle just to maybe catch a bobcat. You know, yes, the trap is working while we're not, but that does not mean we aren't working. In another instance, let's go on to the trap line for a typical day. Let's say you're checking these five traps that you've set. You go out and one of your sets, you have a bobcat. So you go down, you harvest the bobcat. The bobcat has torn the set up completely. You have to then rebuild the brush cubby. You have to rebait it. 
You have to reset the trap, get new wax dirt or peat moss or fur browse laid down so that the trap doesn't freeze. And then you have to hike back up to your vehicle and stow away the bobcat. Then from there, you go and you check the rest of your line and then you head home. Now, every person has to check it every two days. So that means you're checking your line before or after work. Most people get off of work at 5 o'clock in the evening. You leave work. It's 5 o'clock in the evening. You go and you check your set. You harvest a bobcat. You go check the rest of your sets. By the time that you get home, it's generally 7.30, 8 o'clock. So you get home. Now you have to contend with your household chores, whatever it may be. You know, you hug your kids. You eat dinner with your spouse. You have to fix the leaky sink take out the trash, whatever it may be. So now, you know, it's 8.30, 9 o'clock. You got your chores done. The kids are tucked into bed. Now you have to go out and you have to take care of this bobcat. Well, where that starts is skinning the bobcat. So you hang him up in your shop. You pull out your best knife. You sharpen it. And you begin skinning this bobcat and put it up. Now, most people generally take quite a while to skin a bobcat just because of the high quality of the fur. So you're spending at minimum 45 minutes to get this bobcat perfectly skinned. Now it's, let's say, 9, 30, 10 o'clock. From there, you have to flesh the bobcat. Now a bobcat isn't something that's super hard to flesh. It doesn't have a ton of meat and membrane, but it's still time consuming and it's still hard work. You have to scrape it just the perfect amount. That way you don't break through the skin layer and pop the hair. You have to make sure all the fat and the meat is off. That way the hide will dry properly. And so it takes a good bit of time. Now it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock after you've taken care of that bobcat. Then you have to wash. Now washing it's fairly straightforward. You put it in a big tub of water. You put some Dawn dish soap, some laundry detergent, whatever you may use in, and you begin scrubbing the, the hair and the hide. And the purpose is to get all the fat, all the grease, all the meat, and the blood out of that hair so that when you put it up, it's not stained. So you spend another half hour sitting there washing it. You hang it up to dry. You wring it out. Try and get as much water as you can out. And then you flip it so that the hair side is facing a board. Well, that takes, you know, another half hour. So it's 11, 11.30 by this point. You get the bobcat on the board, skin side out, hair side in. And you tack it up in the shape you kind of want it to be in. And then you set it next to the wood stove so it can dry. Or you put a big fan in front of it, get the air moving around it. And you allow that skin drying process to start. Then you can go to bed, but you're not going to go to bed for very long. You're going to get up in a couple hours. You're going to check the hide. You're going to make sure that all the skin is dried or it's not sticky and it's not going to stick to the board. So then it's two o'clock in the morning. So you take that bobcat, you untack it, you take it off the board, you flip it hair side out. Now you put it down back on the board and you tack it up in its finished place. So now you got to let the hair dry. It's probably 2.30 in the morning. You go back to bed and you wake up at 4. 
you come down, you brush the hair out, you're trying to get as much surface area open so that the water can evaporate and the hair can dry. Then you might go back to bed, let's say for another two hours. You wake up at six. Again, you go and you check the bobcat, you turn it so it's drying evenly, you're brushing it some more. Then you start your regular day. You eat breakfast, have a cup of coffee, and you head off to work. And then from there, the process may start all over again. And there's times where you're multiplying how much time you have to spend skinning or fleshing or turning the hide or washing and drying because you'll catch multiple animals in a night. There's guys that catch, you know, doubles, triples on coyotes every night or beaver or raccoon. And it can be a long and grueling process and you still have to be able to go to work the next day and live your life. So to say we're lazy is just absurd. To the the next subject here, a lot of people have the misconception that we're out there using these big giant toothed bear traps. Not true. You haven't been able to use a tooth trap for many a decades, especially in the state of Oregon. Traps today are humane. Conibear killing traps They're humane. They kill the animal right quick. And they do. Generally, it's a tool for water trappers. It's not specific for water trappers. And there are quite a few land sets that you can use conibears in quite effectively. But how a conibear works is you set it up on the animal's path or a path that he's going to follow. And he runs through the trap and it whacks him on the back of the head and severs their spinal cord. And what that allows for is an almost instantaneous humane death. His nervous system is destroyed. There's nothing going from the brain to the rest of the body within a matter of seconds. And the animal's dead. He feels nothing over and done with. There's no sitting there. There's no waiting. But even to the point of saying, well, you still can use footholds, footholds sit there, and the animal sits there in them, their foot's pinched, they're in discomfort, and they're stressed out and freaking out. Let me tell you something. A foothold restraining trap is just that. It holds their foot. It does not hurt their foot. It holds them there. It is no different than a law enforcement officer putting a handcuff on a criminal to hold him in a specific position. I have walked up on many of animals who are not in discomfort, who are either just sitting there or even sleeping at my set, caught. No discomfort, not stressing out, they're just sitting there. So then you go, you harvest the animal, and from there you take the trap off the foot, and all that's there is a tiny little crease in their foot. I don't think I've ever had an animal with a broken foot. It's humane. It doesn't hurt. I've stuck my hand in traps and given presentations. It doesn't hurt. It is literally there to hold the animal. And in today's trapping laws in Oregon, for a number three or larger foothold, you ha- or a foothold that has a jaw spread greater of s- than six inches, there has to be a three sixteenths inch of a gap there. And 
It doesn't pinch their foot. There's room for circulation. The animal's fine. He just can't get away. And that's the main purpose of a foothold. We don't want to set a tooth trap that's going to damage the fur, going to cause the animal pain, because then the animal's going to stress and it's going to try and harm itself. And it's not going to produce a great fur product that we can utilize. And in that, you know, a lot of misconceptions, people think that just using a trap is unfair. It's a device that the animal doesn't know what it is and they step in it and they get killed or they get caught. How is that unfair? You have an animal that can roam all over God's green earth. He can go wherever he chooses and he follows his instincts. He sees a set. He comes in smelling, looking for some food or There may be a lure there that's enticing him that another animal's been in his territory. He steps on a spot no bigger than a Copenhagen can. He has all the room in the world to wander and be free and not get caught, but yet we entice him in to where he can step on something the size of a Copenhagen can and be caught. How is that unfair? If we're going to say that's unfair, I'd like to point out that I can't scale a 30-foot tree after a bobcat. I think that's unfair. I think it's unfair that he has claws and can climb that tree. Well, humans don't have claws. It wasn't an adaptation that we have. Humans have the ability to make tools, and so that's what we use. We make tools for use in the world to capture food, to hunt animals, to fish, Bobcats adapted to hear better, to see better, to smell better. They have claws to climb trees. They have fur to keep them warm. And what we have, we have the ability to to make tools, to make clothing, to think and process different ideas. And so to say it's an unfair advantage, it's just the difference in adaptations that our two species have evolved into. It's just how nature has ran its course. So one other thing I want to put in here, guys, before closing thoughts is trappers are not wasteful people and we're not just after a fur hide to sell. Yes, fur is a huge commodity, but it's not the only thing we get from an animal. There are so many uses for the different species that are caught, especially in Oregon. Uh, We'll take a mink, for example. You know, a mink, yes, we get the fur off of it. It's a beautiful fur. It is an absolutely gorgeous fur. But it's not the only thing we get off of it. We get the fat off the mink, which is rendered down and made into mink oil, which is waterproofing for boots and leather softeners. You can take the carcass. A lot of commercial crab fishermen use mink carcasses ground up and put in their crab pots because seals and sea lions don't like to eat mink. And so therefore, they kind of leave the crab pots alone compared if you were throwing in chunks of fish. Now let's take a beaver. Again, beaver fur is beautiful. It's a beautiful color. It's got waterproofing qualities to it. It's great for making hats and clothing, but it's not the only thing we get. We get the leather off the tail. Beaver tail wallets are amazing, guys. They are high quality, they look cool, and they're absolutely beautiful. We also get the caster from the beaver. The caster glands 
have multiple uses. It's not just for, you know, trapping lures uh, to catch more beaver. Believe it or not, castor goes into a lot of lotions and creams. Um, it goes into some perfumes. So it has relevance all over the world. The same thing goes. A skunk, the scent glands from a skunk, the oil removed from them, minute amount of that go into quite a few perfumes because it carries odor very well. And so they mask the skunk scent with flowers and whatever it may be, but that skunk essence is in there as well. You take a bobcat, for example. You don't just sell the fur. Sure, the fur is the main money maker, but you can get money for the claws, for the tails, the teeth, the paws. Tails get made into keychains. Paws get made into keychains. Teeth and claws can be made into necklace or earrings. There's a ton of uses for harvesting these animals. And I think trappers utilize that to the full extent because we want to honor the animal. And we want to do it justice. And in a way, we're thanking the animal for letting us harvest it. So as the final note, trappers aren't these bloodthirsty killers with giant tooth bear traps who are greedy and lazy and unfair in the means of catching animals. We're just men and women who love to go out, enjoy the outdoors, participate in an activity that helps to manage our resources on the land. And that's what I love about it. And that's where I'll end the show today. Some ending thoughts here. Uh, just to provide you some information, if you want to write into the show and ask questions, you can send an email to organ trapper podcast at gmail.com. We'll respond as quickly as we can. If you have an idea for the show, please send it in. If you have some experience and want to talk on the show, I will have a discussion with you and we'll see what we can do. So I ask that if you like the show, you go on to whatever podcast platform that you're listening to and leave a good review and I'll see you guys next week.